Let's pray together once again as we long for the Lord to prepare our hearts and open our ears that we might hear what he has to say to us from his word this morning. Oh Lord, it is our prayer that in your grace you would cause your word to be what it is, and that is a swift and effective word, that it would pass from ear to heart to the lips and to the lives of us, your people, as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, rather may it accomplish your purpose as we now listen to your voice. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are returning to our summer series where we're considering various psalms in the Psalter. And today, we're going to be uh, pondering together Psalm 81. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Psalm 81. You'll have to flip a little bit if you're using the Pew Bible. For some reason, it's actually on 472 rather than 448. The 81st Psalm begin reading in verse 1. Let us now give our attention to God's good word. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, which is probably more than likely a musical term of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon. At the full moon on our feast day, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. This is the word of the Lord. We all have our favorite psalms, don't we? Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 27, 46, 90, 110, and many more besides. Psalms we love because of the beautiful way. Even the intensely emotional way they reorient us to God's goodness, remind us of God's grace, renew us in God's love, and redirect us to God's call. That is his call to trust him in every circumstance and with every emotion. We have our favorite psalms, 
But out of all the Psalms, which Psalm is central? I mean literally central. Which Psalm is located at the very heart of the Psalter? Well, it's actually this one. Psalm 81. Now, you may try to do the math and think, well, you don't know your math. It's not actually the center psalm. But it is when we remember that the Psalter is a collection of 150 psalms. And those 150 psalms are divided into five books. And because there are five books, we can say that book three, which includes Psalms 73 to 89, is the central book of the Psalter. And within this central book... Psalm 81 is right in the middle, making it the central psalm in the central book of the Psalter. And because this psalm has been placed in the very center of the Psalter, we can say that it's also at the very heart of worship. For what is the Psalter? Well, it's our songbook. It's the worship book that God has given to his people. It's the book inspired by God to shape us into true worshipers of him. And according to this central psalm, central to worship is listening. Listening to God's word. You see, the very center of this central psalm is verse 8. O Israel, if you would but listen... To me, listening to God's word is at the heart of worship and particularly our corporate worship on the Lord's day. For notice, this psalm is given in the context of corporate worship. Here we have a psalm written by Asaph, one of the chief worship leaders in Israel. And it's a psalm directed to the choir master. And it begins by calling the covenant community to celebrate who God is. That he is our strength. That he and not we is the source and supply of our true strength. And because he is, we're to celebrate him. We're to celebrate him loudly and joyfully. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine. The sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet. In corporate worship. When we come into the presence of our strong and saving God, voices are to be raised and instruments are to be played and all in the celebration of who God is. And under the old covenant in which this psalm was first given, all had a part to play in corporate worship. For example, in verse one, all were to sing loudly and joyfully. Not one voice in worship was to be silent. Then in verse 2, the Levites, who were the chief musicians in Israel, were to play instrument that led and accompanied the people singing. And then in verse 3, it was the responsibility of the priests to blow the trumpets. All had a part to play in corporate worship, which again is the context of this psalm. Yet interestingly, the context for this psalm isn't just any corporate worship. No, the corporate worship spoken of here took place at a particular time and season in Israel's liturgical calendar. And we know this because of the psalm's reference to the new moon and the full moon. Look at verse 3 again. Blow the trumpet at the new moon at the full moon on our feast day. Now, it was only in the seventh month of Israel's calendar that we find holy days occurring at the new moon and the full moon. The new moon of the seventh month 
Well, it marked the beginning of Israel's new year, and it was known as the Feast of Trumpets, a feast marked by a solemn rest, a holy gathering, the offering of sacrifice, and of course, blasting the trumpets in celebration. And then 15 days later, at the full moon, a new season began, and it was known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And during this feast, Israel was to live in tents or makeshift shelters for the purpose of remembering their wilderness wanderings, of how God had led uh, them and provided for them in their place of, of lack, and how he eventually brought them into the land of promise. And then right in the middle, between the new moon and the full moon, was another great day. For on the tenth day of the seventh month, we find the great day of atonement, when the high priest alone would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice, not only for himself, but for all the people. And it was on this day that Israel was especially reminded that the only way a person can be cleansed so as to have communion with God is through a sacrificial substitute. So the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, and then right in the middle, the Day of Atonement. Each are being referred to here in Psalm 81. Each called for times of corporate worship. Worship characterized by feasting and fasting, singing and sacrifice. But most of all, according to this psalm, these these times of corporate worship were to be characterized by listening in loyalty to God's word. But you see, that was the problem. It was Israel's consistent problem. For time and time again, Israel, God's covenant people, refused to listen to God's word and instead chose to listen to their own word as well as the word of the surrounding pagan culture. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that Israel stopped coming to corporate worship when they listened to their word or the word of the surrounding culture. No, they still showed up. They still sang. They continued to blast the trumpets and dwell in tabernacles. They continued to offer sacrifice, but they did all this with closed ears. Closed ears to their God. Ears that revealed that their hearts were far from God and hard toward his word. As we're told in Isaiah 29, Israel drew near with their mouths to honor God with their lips. But in reality, their hearts were far from him. Meaning they went through the motions of corporate worship, but they didn't really worship. Because there can be no worship without a true listening to God's voice. It's possible for us to speak the liturgy, to sing the songs of worship, and not really worship at all. It's possible to go through the rich ritual of worship, yet in reality refuse to worship because our ears are actually closed to God's word. And it's this sad reality that this psalm wants to combat by getting across to us loud and clear that the center of worship, the very heart of what we're doing here this morning, is hearing and heeding God's voice. Hearing it in such a way that our hearts actually begin to to echo Mother Mary who said to the angel, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, in the time we have remaining, here's what I want us to do. I want us to simply walk through this psalm in order to see what it says about the centrality of God's word in worship. You see, when we gather on our feast day, 
On the Lord's Day, as we're doing here this morning, we gather above all to be addressed. To be addressed by our strong, sovereign, and saving King. God calls us every Sunday to gather as His people to listen afresh to His Word. And when He speaks, what does He say? What message are we to hear and give ourselves to? Well, according to this psalm, God speaks a fourfold message, one that actually summarizes what God consistently says to us from his word when we gather in worship. And the first part of this fourfold message is remembrance. When we gather in worship, we gather to hear and to rehear what God in his grace has done for us. Done for you if you belong to him. How he's rescued us, revealed his will to us, and how he actually tries us for our good. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, I relieved your shoulder from the burden, your hands from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And here the psalmist is summarizing three great events in Israel's life. The exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law at Sinai when God's voice thundered from the mountain, and the time when Israel provoked God in the wilderness. You see, when Israel was helpless in Egypt, we're familiar with the story, when they were helpless in Egypt, suffering under the oppression of slavery, God in his mercy heard their cries. He saw them in their need, and in seeing them, he came and delivered them. He relieved them from their burden of bondage by giving them freedom. And then, after he brought them out of Egypt, he revealed his holy will, his holy law at Sinai, saying, because I delivered you, you're now to walk in my ways. They're working on that, by the way. I see all sorts of people back there messing with that. We're not sure what it is. So he delivered them, and he says, because I delivered you, here now is my holy instruction. And yet, as the narrative in the book of Numbers makes clear, the people whom God brought out of Egypt still had a lot of Egypt in them. And therefore, they had to learn how to rely on God's word through trial and testing that was intended to refine them. And one such testing took place at Meribah. When Israel grumbled against God because they had no water, they grumbled in unbelief, thinking that God had actually delivered them for the purpose of letting them die in the wilderness. But of course, he didn't. For, in the face of, for even in the face of their sinful grumbling, what did God do? He provided water from the rock, physical water intended to show Israel that God alone is the fountain of living waters. The waters we humans so desperately need. When Israel gathered in corporate worship, they were to remember these events. They were to hear a message of remembrance, one that reminded them that God was their deliverer, that God was their guide, and that God was the one who would protect them and provide for them even in their place of lack. And my friends, when we gather in worship, we're to be reminded of the same things albeit from a better vantage point. For the exodus, the giving of the law, and the providing of water from the rock 
while actual historical events were merely pictures of what God has done for us in Jesus. How in Jesus, God's relieved our greatest burden, the burden of our slavery to sin and shame. And he's done so through Jesus willingly bearing our sin and shame on his shoulders as he hung on that cursed tree. And he hung there that we might be delivered from the curse and condemnation our sins deserve. In Jesus, we see him who not only gave the law, but who fulfilled the law for us. Jesus was obedient for our disobedience. And now in belonging to him, God, by his spirit, has actually written God's law upon our hearts. So that by the spirit, we can learn to keep God's law and no longer relate to it as a burden but as a newfound delight. And it's in Jesus that God tests and tries us, that he allows hardship to come our way so that through that hardship, whatever it may be, we might see and know Jesus as the living water that alone can satisfy us and see us through, see us through our personal and even worldly lack. Week after week, God gathers us in worship to say to us, Remember, my son, remember that I sent him for you. Remember that he gave himself on the cross to deliver you. Remember that I redeemed you to belong to him so that you might now learn to walk in his way, in his law of love. And remember that in Christ, our God does design trials in our lives, but not to consume us. That's the way it feels, isn't it? But it's not to consume us, but to refine us, to teach us that his strong grace is indeed sufficient, that when we're weak, he is strong. Remember Jesus. This is God's central message to us, his people. It's the message we need to hear again and again, week after week, because like Israel, we so often forget And that brings us to the second part of this fourfold message and its rebuke. Because we so often and so easily forget God and his word, God in his grace rebukes us. Listen to what it says in verses 8 to 10. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, says God. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. And you shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And here the psalmist is combining and summarizing two great statements from the Old Testament. The first is known as the Shema. It's taken from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. There's only one God And he has become our God through his salvation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. The second statement is taken from the Ten Commandments. And particularly the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Two great commandments, two great statements with one central point. What's the point? Utmost allegiance to God. To the God who's brought us out of the Egypt of our sin and death. In his grace and power, God worked our salvation. And he did so not to give us autonomy. 
but that we might learn to live under his good and life-giving authority, his humble and saving authority that never dominates or abuses or crushes, but that saves. God didn't save us in Christ to live for self, but to live for him, to live in allegiance to him. Christ purchased us with his precious blood that God may be first in our hearts. On the cross, Jesus gave himself for us that we might more and more learn to give up our idolatry. That we might give it up so as to learn to fight against our penchant of looking to and bowing down to anything and everything besides God. To looking to the things of this fleeting and fading world, whether it be materialism, nationalism, politics, sex, or greed as the source of our strength and satisfaction. And yet, because we're still on the way, much like Israel making our way through the wilderness of this still broken world, which means because we're still on the way, we haven't yet arrived, we're a people who are prone to leave the God that we say we love. And knowing that we often engage in looking to other things, looking to ourselves to secure and satisfy us, God in his grace rebukes us. He admonishes us for not listening to the very first commandment of having no other gods before him. O oh Israel, O oh Christian, if you would but listen to me, if you would but give me your love and loyalty. And God says this not because he needs our allegiance. God lacks for nothing. No, God says this because what's best for us, what's best for us human beings is our giving ourselves and our allegiance and our all to our God. We were made and redeemed to give our all to God. And when we don't, God in his patient kindness rebukes us from his word. And he does so because he really does want, want what's best for you and for us. He wants us to flourish. And that's why with his rebuke, he also makes a promise. It's there in verse 10. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. In worship, we're to have open ears that lead to open mouths, open to be filled more and more with God and his word, his word of love, forgiveness, peace, and life. God, in his patient grace, admonishes us that we might continually turn back to him, to him who desires to fill us with the flourishing food of his word that alone can famish, can nourish our famished souls, give rest to our restless hearts and peace to our often anxious minds. This morning, today, are your ears and mouths open to God and his word? Do you come to worship ready to feast on God and his word? To listen to the God who desires to fill you, not with a bunch of stuff, but with himself. Third, this goes with God's message of rebuke, is his message of warning. That if we refuse to remember, if we persistently refuse to, to turn to and tune our hearts to God's voice, then here we're told we'll eventually be given over. Given over to what? 
Well, look at verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. If we resolutely refuse to listen to God, if we persist in our sin, if we continue to prefer worthless idols to the living God, then what we're saying is that all we really want, all we really want is self. All we really want isn't God, but ourselves. But you see, self is a poor and pitiful provider. And eventually, all self can provide is self-shame, self-hiding, self-hatred, self-delusion, self-doubt, and all leading to self-destruction because of the godless lies we continue to put our hope in. To live for self, according to this psalm, is to live under the judgment of God, of God giving us over to dehumanization and death. If we say to God, I don't want you, I don't want to listen to your word, then God will eventually say to us, so be it. If we continually say to God, I want my sin, I want my idols more than I want you, then God will eventually say to us, then you won't have me. God actually gives us what we want. And if we don't want him, we won't get him. But in not getting him, all we'll get is hell. What is hell? Well, it's the condemnation of separation from God. It's a living death. And my friends, every person in hell wants to be there. I'm not saying they like it there. But they do want to be there because what they wanted most was to live apart from God and his word. And in hell, God ultimately gives them what they wanted all along. If we don't want God in this life, we can't expect to have him in the next. If all we say in this life is my will be done, then our will will eventually be done. And we'll have willed hell for ourselves. God will give us up to what we really want. That's the warning of this psalm. What is that? If we really don't want God, what do we get? We get no life. Because there can be no life apart from him who is life in the fullest. And that's why the scripture says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts by refusing to listen to him, by refusing to turn from your sins so as to trust and turn to God who longs, who longs to give himself to you. And we actually hear God's longing, his holy yearning in verse 13. Oh, that my people, you hear the yearning? Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And that brings us to the last part of God's fourfold message, and it's renewal. Renewal born out of God's yearning to give himself to us. God calls us to remember He does rebuke us and he warns us, but he does so all in his yearning love that we might in turn repent and be renewed. Renewed to know him more and more. Renewed to know Christ's strong victory over sin. His strong victory over death and renewed to share more and more in the sweet, the sweet sufficiency of his life, his joy and his peace. You see, in verses 13 to 16, God promised to renew Israel 
if they would but listen to his word so as to learn to walk in his ways. He promised to subdue their enemies, to feed them with the finest wheat, to satisfy them, not simply with water, but honey from the rock. But as history showed, Israel refused to listen to God because in themselves they, they lacked the strength, just as we lack the strength on our own to listen to God's word. But here's the marvel of God's grace. Their and our lack doesn't and cannot nullify God's strong promises. No, in our weakness, God has shown us that he is and will be our strength. In what way? Well, in putting himself in the place of our weakness. In coming to us personally in Jesus. In Jesus, God tabernacled among his weak and unlistening people. In Jesus, he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We didn't listen to God. But Jesus, on our behalf, listened to his Father perfectly. He trusted and submitted to his Father for us, for you. For us who had bowed the knee to worthless idols. And in submitting to his Father on our behalf, he willingly received the rebuke we deserved. He suffered the consequences of God's warning in that he was given up to hell on the cross. When Jesus said, your will be done to his father, he did so for us who in our sin have said to God, my will be done. In Jesus, our strong God put himself in our weak and sinful place. And in so doing, he actually fulfilled the day of atonement when he sacrificed himself for our sins. When he was struck by his own holy judgment that we might be cleansed and brought into communion with God. And he did all this so that our enemies would be subdued and we would be renewed. Christ subdued our enemies. He fought the battle for us. And he did because in his love, in his love, he determined that we sinners were worth fighting for. Think about that. He determined that we sinners were worth fighting for. And that's what he did. He fought for us. And in fighting for us on the cross, he canceled sin. He cast down Satan and he crushed death itself. God in his yearning for us, in his yearning for you, committed himself in blood to have us as his own. As his renewed and being renewed people who are now learning to listen to his word, because by his grace, we actually recognize that it's a word of life. And my friends, it's only when we see God's longing for us in Christ, only when we see God's longing, his first longing for us in Christ, that we'll begin to long to listen to him and bow the knee to him alone. Only in light of Christ crucified, can we recognize that the path to renewal lies along the road of faithful listening, listening to God's word that's centered on his son, the word made flesh for our salvation. Because you see, in light of Jesus, we recognize from this psalm that he is the finest wheat because he's the bread of life. Jesus is the honey from the rock 
Because he's the satisfying sweetness of God's longing love, God's faithful forgiveness, God's perpetual peace, and God's lasting life. And because this is so, because of who he is, because of what he has done willingly on our behalf, what is our response to be? Worship. We are to worship. We are to gather to sing aloud and even shout. Yes, Presbyterians can at times shout. Shout for joy to Jesus. We're to weekly feast at his table in celebration. But most of all, we're to gather for worship to to listen to his voice. His good and gracious, sweet, and yet at times firm voice. Because it's life-giving. We're to listen to his voice as it comes to him in the scriptures. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is our strength, our saving strength, now and forever. And my friends, because we often forget that, because I often forget that, we need to have this message of remembrance, of rebuke, of warning, and of promised renewal that always calls us back to Christ. That is what we need most as a congregation to be pointed to Christ again and again and again, to hear from God's word, look to my son, listen to my son, see what he's done for you. He has you. He will see you through. He truly is your all in all. Let us pray. Lord, I confess that my ears are often clogged When it comes to your word, at times I want to reshape your word to fit me and what I want. And I confess that this is foolish. Thank you that in your grace, you are able to unclog my ears and our ears that we might hear the voice of our good shepherd. The one who laid down his life for us, his sheep the one who is leading us now by the Spirit, the one who continues to speak to us in the Scriptures. I pray for us, your people, that we would indeed listen to your voice. Thank you for your holy yearning and longing that has brought us to Christ. And in being brought to Christ, we now have a strong Savior. 